So please turn in your Bibles to Obadiah, Obadiah, and since that is one of the hardest books in the Bible uh, to find, I'll go ahead and give you a head start. Turn to Obadiah while I introduce myself. Welcome if you are new to Grace and here or live streaming. My name is Chad Donahoe, and I am currently the interim pastor at Grace. I'm very excited about my role as interim pastor, but I'm also very excited for our church to call its next pastor. So just a reminder to continue to pray for that process of our church to call the next pastor. I am currently in a series on the 12 minor prophets. So in your minds, as you're still turning to Obadiah, say them with me in your minds, right? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. You have to the end of the ser- to the end of this uh, sermon series to have these memorized. All right, that's a good. would be a good exercise for us. Uh, these twelve minor prophets. Let me just warm us up with this before we get to Obadiah. That we can think of the minor prophets as God's mouthpiece. They spoke of the Lord. They, they oftentimes would say, thus says the Lord, not speaking on behalf of themselves, but speaking for God. We can also think of the minor prophets as pointers. They pointed back, pointed back to God's covenant. I'll say more about that later, but you're ready, right? When I say covenant, okay, just preparing you. Uh, they point back to God's covenant faithfulness, point back to God's law, God's character, The minor prophets also pointed at God's people, specifically at their sin, reminding them of obedience to the Lord. And they pointed forward in hope that God would fulfill his covenant. So, pointers back at at God's people and forward as well. And what we find in the minor prophets are timeless truths about God about sin, about hope and salvation. And so we have these wonderful promises and we have them in Obadiah this morning. Obadiah, his name means one who serves Yahweh. And though the book does not tell us directly, we can, uh, from various clues within the book, we know that this was written with the southern kingdom of Judah in mind. And I'll speak more about the southern and versus northern kingdom a little bit later in the sermon, but just... Most likely, uh, this was written during the time where the Babylonians were conquering God's people and taking them into exile. Now, Obadiah is the most minor of the, mo- of the minor prophets, um, shortest book in the Old Testament, and I'll read just verses one through four, but I will plan to cover the whole book. But just with this in mind, I started this week with Oh, Badiah, what am I going to do with you, minor prophet? But this morning I'm like, oh, Badiah, you have a message for us. So with that, let me pray for us and uh, we'll dive into his word. My prayer will be based on one of Paul's prayers out of Ephesians chapter 1. We'll take Paul's prayers and we'll make it our own. So Father, this morning we acknowledge You as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, and we pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe according to the working of your great might 
that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead, seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Lord, thank you for that prayer and strengthen us in it, especially as we open your word, that you would encourage us with the message of Obadiah this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Obadiah, chapter one, there's only one chapter. Verse one, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I'll make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So, whoo, how's that for getting us in the Christmas spirit? You know, this is the time of year of Christmas cards and, and songs and decorations and gatherings with good food and a message of judgment on Obadiah or on Edom. But actually, what we will find is this is actually a great Advent message for us this morning. And, and I want to introduce the theme of Obadiah by way of a story. So, as some of you know, I have a deep love for Kansas football, for KU football. I had a brother that played here in the late 80s. Um, now, I was just, I was very young at the time. Part of that is a disclaimer and an excuse for what I'm about to tell you that happened. Very young at the time, so don't judge me too harshly. So during this game, my brother was, again, he was quarterback, um, and uh, the game wasn't going so well. And so one of, the, uh, one of our own fans, the dad of one of our players, started yelling at my brother and constantly harassing my brother throughout most of the game. And I was about here, and that dad was about where Bob Woods is. And so um, I got to the point where, as I'm continuing to hear, I couldn't take it any longer. I'm like, that's my family. I've got my brother's back. You don't get to treat my family that way and get away with it. So what did I do? I reached down and I grabbed my dad's bag of peanuts. They still had the shells on them, so like double barrel. And I just started chucking them at the guy. So finally, as some of the peanuts whizzed by his head and a couple of hit him, he finally looks up at me and I'm like, you know, whistling Jayhawk uh, fight song. Uh, acting like it wasn't me, but then he turns around again and I start chucking him at him again. Okay, was that a proper response? No, kids, don't do this. But what does that silly story illustrate? And it's simply this. That was my family. I was going to get my brothers back. You don't get to treat my family that way and get away with it. Right? There was uh, within me a righteous anger, not that righteous, definitely angry, 
But here's the point. If I can just bridge this story over to Obadiah, what we find in the book of Obadiah is a God who is zealous for his people, his family. It is a God who is just and will not let the sins against his people go unpunished. A God who's got his people's back. It's a covenant-keeping God. And, and I want to I, I set that against another thought. It's a covenant-keeping God, not a deism-keeping God. Deism is this understanding of a God as a distant God who doesn't really intervene, is not really personal. Sometimes in life, I can act like God is God of deism. I think all of us can. But the reality is what we have to understand is our God is a covenant-keeping God. And we see this clearly in the book of Obadiah and how important it is for us to understand God's covenant love. Covenant is not actually used, the word is not actually used in the, in the book of Obadiah, but it's at the heart of it. And what's the covenant? The covenant is, I, yeah, we're going to do it again. Covenant is, I will be your God and you will be my people. It is a promise that God makes. We see that refrain throughout the scriptures. God says, I will be your God. I will be faithful you are mine, and then God calls us to be faithful to him, but has a plan in the end to ensure that we will be faithful. So what we find is that God is a covenant-keeping God, and this is a deeply personal relationship that God establishes with his people. I love the way one of my professors at Covenant Seminary put it. Dr. Williams said this, or wrote this, uh, I am the God who keeps promise. I'm the one who is always faithful. I am the one who is there for my people. I am the one who is here for you. I'm the one who acts on your behalf. In giving his name, God promises his covenant presence to his people. He might be saying, call me dad. I'm the one you can count on. So, as the people of God now, we may not be in exile in Babylon we may not be experiencing persecution the way they did, but we experience pain and suffering in a fallen world in various forms. We experience conflict. It may not be extreme persecution, but we experience pressure to conform to the world around us. We experience discouragement and loneliness and poverty, oppression hostility, and we could go on and on with the list. And the question at times, does God see? Is he going to act? When's he going to act? And what Obadiah reminds us is that God's got his people's back. He has a plan and is working it out even if we don't see it. And I do not expect that we will find um, peanut shells raining down from heaven on evil, evil people's heads, right? But God does have a plan, and Obadiah gives us a window into this plan. So what we're talking about this morning is God, let's just call it covenant zeal. God's covenant zeal for his people. And because of his zeal for his people, Obadiah gives us a message of hope. Of those who have been conquered and exiled by Babylon. And we see two sides of this covenant zeal. God will bring justice to his people who are oppressed and God will bring in the kingdom in its fullness. So first, in the, in, in the first uh, 
15 verses, we see God's message of justice. So in verse 1, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. So, thus says the Lord, again, this is Obadiah speaking on behalf of God. These are God's words, not Obadiah's words. And then concerning Edom. So, why a book in the Bible about Edom? What's the significance of the Edomites? Well, this is actually a tale of two brothers and two responses to God. And so I'm just going to walk through these two brothers and hit some of the highlights in the Old Testament of, of this relationship. So we have to go back and recall that God established a covenant with Abraham. We find this in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. This covenant is significant. Remember, covenant formula, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. He calls Abraham as his, and he gives him these promises. He promises promises Abraham that he will provide for him descendants, that Abraham will grow into a great nation. He also promises him land, a promised land, a land of rest, a land of security, a land where God would dwell with his people. And he promises him that he will bless him so that they will be a blessing to the nations. So these promises to Abraham. So let's go back to this promise of the descendants. So Abraham marries Sarah, and they have Isaac. Isaac then marries Rebekah, and they get pregnant with twin boys. The twin boys are Jacob and Esau. But what we find is that these twin boys are actually two nations in her womb. And we get this from Genesis chapter 25. So God reveals to Rebekah in Genesis 25 that these twins, it's not just twins, they're two nations in her womb. And and, and the older, the scriptures say, the older shall serve the younger. The older is Esau. He comes out first, but then it gets interesting because Jacob comes out right after him And the scriptures tell us Jacob is grabbing Esau's heel as he comes out. Kind of a, ha, gotcha. Which is, we could call that foreshadowing for the rest of their relationship together, trying to get one another, you could say. So this covenant promise of Abraham was to be passed through Abraham's line. Here's what you have to understand. Back in the culture of that day. So that would have been passed through the firstborn, Firstborn would receive the birthright. Birthright meaning the position in the family. They would take over as leadership. They would get a double portion of the inheritance. So this would include the covenant blessing of, again, descendants, land, that they would be blessed. But what does Esau do? Long story short, one day he is really, really hungry. And so he trades his birthright, meaning the covenant blessing, to Jacob for a bowl of soup. And what Genesis 25 tells us is thus Esau despised his birthright. If I can translate and paraphrase that, thus Esau foolishly, foolishly, foolishly gave up the covenant blessing of God for a bowl of soup. Esau came to his senses later and was bitter Suffice it to say, they had what any counselor would call a conflictual relationship, right? And we see this throughout the Old Testament. 
These uh, two sons, sure enough, grow up to be two nations. So what we know is Jacob has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel as that nation grows. Esau also has descendants. They become Edom, the Edomites. So these two nations at war with each other. And it's really important for us to understand Esau could have lived by faith in the blessing that was extended to his brother Jacob. Esau could have been blessed. But instead, out of envy and pride and bitterness, Esau chose to oppose his brother, and the Edomites became the most tenacious foe throughout the Old Testament of the Israelites. So to sum up their history, Edom continued to align themselves with God's enemy to fight against God's people. Therefore, not only oppressing God's people, but fighting against God himself. So verses 1 through 15 are written with Edom in mind, but this is really important. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. So Edom, this is written with Edom in mind, but Edom, he represents something greater than just their own nation. Edom represents all who oppose God's grace and the establishment of his kingdom and rule over the world and all who oppose and oppress God's people. So what we have in verses 1 through 9 is an announcement from the Lord that judgment is coming upon Edom. So look in verse 2. It says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. Interesting that the word despised is used since it was Esau who despised his birthright. And now the Lord is saying Esau and Edom will be despised. And then we see in verse 3, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So the Lord is going after Edom's lofty pride. You know, the old saying, pride comes before the fall. It's pretty fitting here. And what we see is Edom's pride. And what's it based on? say four things that we see in the book of Obadiah. They think of themselves as superior. Part of it is their location. They lived in a mountainous area. They lived in the cliffs. Therefore, this was a, a location that would be hard to attack, easy to defend. In fact, Obadiah refers a couple of times to Mount Esau, right? That, that the, these mountain people. But what does God say? I will bring you down. Edom also took a lot of pride in their allies, but the Lord tells them, no, I will turn your allies against you in verse 7. They also took pride in their wise men, but verse 8 says, I will destroy the wise men out of Edom, says the Lord. And then they also had their mighty, mighty men, their warriors. Verse 9, God says, every one of them will be cut off. So here's what Edom is doing. Edom is playing this game, king of the hill. 
You know, if you're familiar with that game, I grew up playing that game. We, you know, summers, uh, we'd go to the ball fields, and thankfully they were doing some construction, pro, uh, you know, project, and there's this huge dirt pile. So, like, for all the boys around there, game on. King of the hill, the goal is you get to the top of the hill, and you're the king, and you're defending it with everything you have, and the goal is to get to the top of the hill and to stay on top. So really what we find here is Edom playing a game of king of the hill, but they're playing it with the king of Mount Zion. This is not a good matchup for Edom. And we see God is not a fan of lofty pride. And why? We see this throughout the scripture. We see this going all the, ba- all the way back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, we could say, was a game of king of the hill. Not a fun game, not a good game, a tragic game. We see it in the Garden of Eden. What did Satan do? He tempted Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In other words, Adam and Eve, they reached up for that apple in the tree, but what were they really reaching for? Autonomy. Autonomy, that word is self-law. They were reaching to govern themselves, to play God. It's pride. A few chapters later, Genesis 11, we see the Tower of Babel. It's the same sin on a bigger scale. God had told his people to spread out and um, make a name for God throughout the world. What did God's people do with the Tower of Babel? They hunkered down, built a tower, again, reaching up into the heavens. And it says so that they could make a name for themselves. Autonomy, pride, the same sin repeated. And here we are again, Mount Esau in the sin of pride. This serves to remind us of the destructive nature of pride, that we also can fall into playing king of the hill or queen of the hill. And maybe not like the Edomites, hopefully not like the Edomites. But still, um, the question is, uh, what strategy do we use for king of the hill or queen of the hill? And oftentimes what it is, it's taking God's good gifts and twisting them for our own self, right? It could be our own intellect, could be our looks, our personality, could be status, positions of influence and authority, but it's twisting and it, turning it to the self. Rather than glorifying God and loving and serving neighbor, these gifts are turned to where it's pride. It's how we see ourselves. It's how we look down at others. But what does God love? What God loves is humility. Jesus says, said, blessed are the meek. And by meek, he didn't say weak. Meek can be very powerful, but powerful for others. Jesus himself proved that. What do we celebrate this time of year? Genesis, or, uh, sorry, Zephaniah 9.9, rejoice greatly. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble Mounted on a donkey, not a war horse, on a donkey. Later, Paul would say this of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Feel free to, to turn there or just uh, listen. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see this humility of our Lord. And then we have James chapter 4, verse 6, and 1 Peter chapter 5, saying the same thing. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the point I'm making often in my own life and our lives, we will take good gifts of ours that the Lord has given us and and they will be twisted and we take pride out of that. And so what's the answer? Acknowledging that we're doing it, confessing it, but having gratitude for the gifts and asking God to help us to take what we have to serve God and to serve others. The constant need for us to confess our sins to the Lord and seek humility. Let's continue in Obadiah. In verses one through nine, this judgment was announced, but then in verses 10 through 14, we see the reason behind this judgment. Look at verses 10 through 14 as I read. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, On the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them, but do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads and cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So there is some debate. You know, if you're going to be an Obadiah scholar, you just have to know there's some debate over what the event Obadiah is actually talking about. Most think, and I agree with this, that this is a reference to when Babylon conquered Judah. So if you remember, This goes back to what I refer to as the ABCs of Babylon. And I'm even going to do it with some motions for the kiddos, right? So if you remember, ABCs of exile, I should say. ABCs of exile. We had the kingdom of Israel, the the kingdom, God's people divided into the north and the south, right? You had the kingdom of Israel and the north. So Assyria, A, Assyria goes, they conquer God's people, scatter them, and exile them. Then, what you have left is Judah and Jerusalem, who Obadiah is writing to. What do you have? Babylon comes along, conquers Judah, and then exiles them in Babylon. Then we find later, Cyrus of Persia comes to power. That's the sea, Cyrus of Persia, takes God's, or conquers Babylon, and allows God's people to return back to Jerusalem. But what this is talking about here is Babylon coming and conquering God's people 
and taking them into exile. Now, here's the problem. In, the, in, in Israel's darkest moments, Edom did not come to their help, but actually was part of the problem and aligned themselves with Babylon, God's enemy. So in Judah's darkest moment, some of the wording here, Edom stood aloof, right? They gloated, they rejoiced, they boasted. They took their wealth. They even captured some of, the, uh, some of God's people who were trying to escape and brought them to Babylon. So Psalm 137, again, feel free to turn there or I'll just read it. You can follow along. Psalm 37 is, a, is basically the context here that the psalmist is writing a lament. And listen to what the psalmist says. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, L-Y-R-E-S, if you're listening, musical instruments, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing, uh, sing us one of the songs of Zion, just mocking God's people. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. How they, say, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall, be, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Okay, this is that part of scripture that oftentimes Christians can be very uncomfortable with. Right, uh, an imprecatory psalm asking God to bring judgment. So we have to understand the heart of this because this plays into the book of Obadiah. This lament of Psalm 137 has to do with retaliation laws, laws known as lex talionis, otherwise known as law of the tooth. And where does that come from? These laws are cited in the Old Testament in Leviticus 24, Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 19. Following me? Because here we go. This is an important point. I want to talk about these retaliation laws, but how, they, how we understand the heart of them and get to Obadiah of what he is doing. This is important. So the context behind these laws is supposed to be in a just court of law. Where Leviticus 24 tells us, if anyone injures his neighbor, and listen to these words, as he has done it, shall be done to him. Or has, as he has done, it shall be done to him. And then fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And then look at verse 15. It says, as you have done, it shall be done to you, verse 15 of Obadiah. Your deeds shall return on your own head. And so how are we to understand the application of these laws? First, again, these laws, laws of retaliation in the Old Testament, were to be done in a just court of law, but they were to ensure that there would not be improper retaliation on a personal level above and beyond the offenses that took place. 
And in fact, Jesus speaks of these laws in the Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew 5.38, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. Now, and Jesus goes on to say some more, but we have to understand, Jesus was not um, contradicting the laws of justice that were to take place in a court of law, but he was correcting the wrong practices of the religious leaders of the day, what they were doing and what they were teaching God's people, and the wrong practice of taking personal vengeance out on people who do something to you. And in fact, what Jesus says He goes on to say, but you are to repay evil with good, Matthew 5, 38 through 42. You are to love and pray for your enemies, Matthew 5, 44. You are to forgive those who sin against you, Matthew 6, 14. And how is this possible? Because this is really difficult. And the point of the scriptures and of Obadiah is that God will bring about perfect justice in the end. We have to remember God is, Obadiah is speaking to people who are utterly in despair. And so, we have to recognize out of God's covenant zeal, if you mess with God's people, you are messing with God, and he will make things right. So, Chad, are you saying we should do nothing? Just let go and let God... Right? And the answer is no. No, we are to pursue justice, but a couple of things. But we have to recognize that we live in a fallen world and it will never be perfect. And we will be sorely disappointed and injustices will drive us crazy. But ultimately, God will set everything perfectly right. And that is the message to encourage us. But it's also this. It's the same question I asked last week, and I would say it again. Are we to pursue justice in the world? Yes. Um, Question last week was, what is on God's heart and what is under our nose? Because we can't do everything, but what has God called us to do? And, And maybe if I could say it this way. One of the sins of the Edomites is they stood aloof is what Obadiah tells us. They stood aloof. And again, we're not the Edomites, but the question for us is, what does it look like for us if we stand aloof? And to stand aloof means for the people of God not entering into one another's burdens. If I can widen this application, it's not entering into one another's burdens by way of prayer and action. Okay, we stand aloof at times, when whether our wealth or our talents, our abilities, our energy um, is wasted on the wrong things rather than serving God, loving God, loving our neighbor, right? We stand aloof outside of our church in conversations in the world where we could bring people, whether it's to Jesus or a step closer to Jesus, but we stand aloof in our conversations, not going there out of fear. And again, God is a God who does not stand aloof, and he calls his people to not stand aloof either. So, with that promise of Obadiah's God will bring about justice 
but God also will restore his kingdom for his people. And we see this in verses 15 through 21. For the day of the Lord is near upon the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. There shall be no survivors for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. In verse 19, those of the Najib shall possess Mount Esau. And then 19 through 20 is a lot of possess the land language. Ending in 21, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So I want to sum all this up fairly briefly. Verse 15 talks about this day of the Lord. Remember, when the prophets would talk about the day of the Lord, this is a day when God would intervene in history for his people in a significant way. This happened multiple times, but it always pointed to the ultimate day of the Lord, When God would intervene, we know that as Jesus returning to make all things right. Verse 16 speaks of this drinking, of that these nations shall drink continually. What's that about? Well, what we find throughout the Old Testament, these references to this cup of wrath that the nations will drink because of their rebellion against God and their oppression against God's people. We find this in Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, Ezekiel 23, all talk about that cup of wrath. Do you also recall in the New Testament who spoke of that cup? In the Garden of Gethsemane, it was Jesus when he asked, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, let it pass. But Jesus was faithful on the cross to drink the cup of God's wrath. Verse 17 says, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, meaning escape God's wrath, and it shall be holy. And then goes on this language, But the house of Jacob shall take possession. And we see throughout this possession, and if you, look at, if you were to look at a map, you would notice that this possession is the promised land, north, south, east, and west, a land that is expanding. And what's the idea here? If you remember, I mentioned either last week or the week before that oftentimes I look at the Old Testament as checkers. Like at times there's these, you know, checkers you jump, but there's a double jump, like that glorious double jump that, so the Old Testament at times there's an event that happens, that first jump, but that event is always pointing, I shouldn't say always, some of the events are pointing beyond them to an even greater fulfillment. And this is where we see all this language of land. Just think about it from the whole Old Testament. Yet Adam and Eve in this glorious promised land, but their unfaithfulness, so they get kicked out. Then you have God calling Abraham saying, I will give you a promised land. And we see Abraham becomes Israel, this nation, but they always struggled to stay in the land. God had promised a land where he would dwell with them, give them peace and rest and safety, but they continue to sin, exiled out of the land. And then we open up the pages of the New Testament and we see 
the true and faithful Israelite, Jesus himself, who shows up in the land in flesh, God himself takes on flesh. And that what we see throughout the Gospels is Jesus himself taking back the land. Jesus was in the same area of the Old Testament where God's people failed to take the land. You can think of the book of Joshua over and over. They did not take the land. But you see Jesus reclaiming the land. And how is he doing? He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He is healing diseases. He is casting out demons. He is uh, stopping storms. Like, this is God. He is reclaiming the land. But Jesus pointed to something even greater than that land. Because what he talked to his disciples about was blessed, well, they, because they will inherit the earth. And so what we find is Jesus faithfully dies on the cross, ascends to the right hand of the Father, but sends his spirit. He tells his disciples through the power of the spirit to go out throughout the land, making disciples, but with a promise that Jesus at the right hand of the Father will come again and he will establish not just that local land, he will establish the new heavens and the new earth. That is the promise that we are awaiting for. And we see in verse 21, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion. Saviors, due to God's covenant zeal, he continues to provide deliverers and we see these throughout the Old Testament, whether, whether it was Abraham or Moses or, or David, these, uh, these deliverers. But they always pointed to a greater deliverer. And that is what takes us to the table. I mentioned uh, at the beginning that Obadiah is, is actually a great story about Advent that God makes a covenant promise, a zeal, for, a covenant zeal for his people, that he will establish justice and that he will provide the kingdom in, his, in its fullness for them. But you cannot have a kingdom without a king. And the Old Testament pointed to this need for the true king. This is what we celebrate this time of year, right? The Gospel of Luke opens with this, with a visit from the angel Gabriel to Mary. Listen to these words. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And then listen to Mary's response and I want you to hear in Mary's response, in many ways, the message of Obadiah. Her response is, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. And we have this, after Jesus is born, Herod the Great, who was king over the Jews, put there under Roman occupation, 
sought to kill Jesus at his birth due to the prophecy that a king would be born in Bethlehem. So this King Jesus was a threat to King Herod. King Herod was actually a descendant from Edom. But God, once again, was faithful. And so Obadiah is the story of God's sovereign grace. It is the story of God's zeal for his people that those who are oppressed will not be oppressed forever. And God will establish his kingdom in its fullness. And what is the proof behind this? On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after giving thanks, gave this to his disciples. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Notice, he said, the new covenant. What was wrong with the old covenant? God's people. What's new about the new covenant? Jesus. That he would take care of sin himself by way of the cross. The apostle Paul adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what are we declaring and proclaiming? That God's got our back. That God will defeat his enemies and he will usher in the kingdom. And let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would use this table in a way that reminds us of your promises that you will set all things right and establish your kingdom. And we pray that you would meet us here, grow us in faith and the knowledge of your grace. Give us a hope that continues to sustain us week after week. Pray that you would take this bread, this juice, Set it apart in such a way that we know that you are with us. And may you be glorified through this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.